I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we are starting a great week of maritime history with a couple of episodes relating to the Titanic disaster. Yes, that well-known historic moment when in April 1912 the largest vessel in the world struck an iceberg and split in half in the middle of the North Atlantic, taking with her around 1,500 souls. First up, today we hear from Claire Weston, who tells us about Titanic's anchors. Claire has worked in museums for over 20 years, curating industrial and social history collections, and is currently a researcher at the fabulous Black Country Living Museum, where her work focuses on uncovering and promoting the history of the once heavily industrialised region known as the Black Country in the centre of England. Now, I'm lucky enough to have actually spent some time filming at the Black Country Living Museum, so I know how good it is firsthand. But for you, let me just say that they bring to life 300 years of history, exploring the story of the first industrialised landscape in Britain known as the Black Country. At the brilliant open-air site, visitors can step back in time to meet historical characters and watch demonstrations of traditional black country industries like nail and chain making. They can also discover real lives and real stories through the recreated houses, shops and industrial buildings, many having been moved brick by brick to the museum. The museum also has a designated collection of objects and archival material of national and international importance, which reflects the region's history. It really is a fabulous place. Now, you might be wondering why on earth I would be talking to someone from the black country about maritime history. It's about as far from the sea as you can get in Britain. But the black country was instrumental in shaping Britain's maritime history because of all of the heavy industry there that created crucial maritime equipment like anchors and anchor chains. And the story of Titanic's anchors is one of the very best. It's a story of ingenuity, pride and hard work and, of course, steam hammers. 
Now, if you want to put this episode in context, then do please check out our previous episode on the Titanic, in which I speak with the brilliant Don Lynch, a historian and member of the Titanic Historical Society, and the man who has spoken to more survivors of the Titanic than anyone else alive. An astonishing 20! He's also spoken to numerous relatives of survivors and victims. You can find that episode in our back catalogue published in January of this year. And there is also coming up in the next couple of days an episode on the Carpathia, the ship that sailed to Titanic's rescue and which has the most wonderful history of her own, and one that also ends in disaster. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that in the coming days. For now, though, let's head to Middle-earth, the Midlands, and meet a real-life person from the black country. I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Here is the brilliant Claire. Claire, thank you very much for joining me today. Sam, it's a pleasure to be here. So, the black country, for all of our listeners around the world who've never heard of the black country, can you tell us where it is, what it is? <laughs> well, if they look on a map, they won't find it. Um, it's uh, <laughs> if, you, if you look at a map of um, the UK, look um, in the middle of England um, and find Birmingham. And then the black country is like, kind of like to the north and the west of Birmingham. The most important thing, especially if you're talking to somebody from the black country, is it is not Birmingham. Um, they get very upset. Um, there's, there's a, there is a distinction in the accent as well, um, which if you live in the area, you'll get to know between Birmingham and black country. Um, it's a term that started to be used around 1830. Um, and it's really a geographical area that was um, kind of like all the this like explosion of industry in um, sort of the Industrial Revolution. Um, it's an area that's rich in a, like a lot of um, raw materials like coal, um, ironstone, limestone, fire clay. So a lot of industries just kind of like emerged, like erupted. And the black country, it, it's described in the 1860s by um, the American consul to Birmingham. Um, I think he's called Elia Burrett. He describes it as black by day and red by night. The red is like the furnaces, because I mean, it was just like around the clock production. Um, the main thing about the black country as well is that it's... Um, like I've said, it's it's a geographical term. It's lots of little towns, all with like unique industries. So um, Warsaw is famous for leather making, like saddles, also brass. Um, Willen Hall was famous for locks. The anchors and chain, which we're going to talk about, is predominantly in areas like Netherton, Cradley Heath, Cradley Quarry Bank. Now, if you live locally, you'll know all these these towns will mean something to you, and I appreciate to other people they won't. But people had quite a strong kind of local town identity, usually like linked to the industry that they worked in. Today, if you look at a map, it's largely made up of four local authorities, which are Wolverhampton, Warsaw, Sandwell and Dudley. And um, the anchor making industry was predominantly centred in what we would call Dudley local authority today. So I hope that uh, helps. <laughs> No, absolutely. It helps me. I think there are some Birmingham's in the middle of the UK. If you're if you're listening in South America and you never even heard of Birmingham, then that'll that'll help you. Um, so, uh, but it's not Birmingham, and I, I really like the fact that they identify themselves as not being 
the next to the very large city which they're next to, which is um, there's something very British about that by saying I don't really care who I am, but I'm not that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not over there. Yeah, because I, um, I, I, I mean I'm actually from the Black Country, but my brother was born in Birmingham, but he is he's adamant he's not a Brummie. That's the local term, a, a Brummie uh, from Birmingham. Um, so it, people strongly do identify with where they come from around here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the um, the industries are slightly different as well. So you've got the black country. We'll do talked about that. But how how did that different to what the industry was going on in Birmingham at the time? I think there are some crossovers with the industries. I know Birmingham had like a um, brass industry, um, but it's really like I mean Birmingham's often called the workshop of the world, but so is the black country. Um, there are crossovers in some of the industries and they were um, once the canals came along that really linked up the area Birmingham and the black country you could um, travel like to and from um, but it's it's just this kind of like it, this identity of like each sort of different towns being famous for particular products so like in Stourbridge Briley Hill area um, glass there's brick making um, in Bilston, Wolverhampton, it's an enamels are pretty big, um, like a industry there. So it's, I think it's, yeah, just it just comes down to these little towns and these industries. Yeah. I think really. Yeah. So little microcosms within within the Black Country. Um, we should also say for our our listeners who aren't familiar with British geography is that Birmingham is nowhere near the sea and the black country is nowhere near the sea so uh, how did it come to be associated with um this amazing maritime industry it comes down to the um a lot of it comes down to the raw materials that were available in the area um nails and chain are being made um sort of like the late 18th early 19th century these things are being made and then the industry expands and as technology expands they're able to kind of start making anchors um, a lot of the chain making companies actually sort of move into making anchors. Um, you've also got like a um, skilled workforce and that grows as the industries ex- sort of explode and expand. You get a skilled workforce. You will get migration coming into the area because it wasn't heavily populated um, before industry. Um, there were farms, but I don't think it was particularly rich for farming area. So you, you need people to come from somewhere as well as your local population. Um but yeah, it's it's that kind of like um, coming together of skilled workforce and the raw materials and, you know, entrepreneurs. And we're going to come on to Noah Hingley, whose works made the Titanic anchor. These entrepreneurs who see opportunities and seize them and are able to expand their businesses. Let's talk about those um, raw materials. What did you need to make enormous anchor chain or an anchor? Um you, well, you needed um, the fuel for the furnaces for a start because they are quite guzzly. You know, to make to make the anchors, they need a lot of fuel. So one of the things the area was very rich in is coal. You, um, if you know the area, uh, people talk about the Staffordshire um, seam. It was a, like a massive like um, length of coal. Sometimes it was so big it actually came up out of the ground. You could see it. Wow. Um, the mining industry kind of really came to an end in this area in the late nineteen sixties. Um, whereas other areas continued like um, sort of in the north and the east midlands Um, but yeah it was like coal was massive industry here and so a lot of the companies set up by collieries or companies owned collieries Um, and then you've got the um, the the Hingley um, factory um, sort of specialised in using wrought iron so you've got the, 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 the materials kind of all coming together really 
And I suppose that the it was very important that the black country is well connected to other parts of the UK. So should we just talk a little bit about the canals and the, the railway system, which allowed all of this industry to happen in the middle of the country, but then link to the coast? Yeah, I mean, before the canals, the roads in um, England were terrible, um, pretty, pretty bad. And, and they were they were sort of like getting their goods out into the world. Um, the Hingleys had links, say, with Liverpool. They were sending their nails um, that they were making and chain out to to Liverpool. Um, but the the journey, you know, it was it, it was a really bad kind of like way of getting around. So when the canals came along, it really kind of opened up the the Black Country in Birmingham. Um, I mean, you'll I I think it's a bit of an urban myth, but people will say that Birmingham has more canals than Venice. Um, <laughs> there's certainly a lot. It, <laughs> Yeah. And there's some parts that are quite picturesque. Not not all, but some parts of the canal are. Um, but yeah, it, I've we, always been suspicious of that, but I would love it to be true. Yeah. Someone tell us. Someone get in touch and tell me whether it is actually true. Yeah, I think someone's got to go and actually measure them all, haven't they? Perhaps I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it really connected up the area. And where Noah Hingley's works um, were in Netherton, they were right by. Um, I think it's the number two Dudley Canal. Um, and and that would just open you up to um and my geography is going to be quite weak here where it linked up to but it, i think it took it would take you off to birmingham definitely mm-hmm. um that canal um link and then that would open you up into like the the network of canals around the country and to the areas you needed to get your goods to so the canals were hugely important and then along come the railways again which sort of you can get your goods somewhere a lot faster as well um which changes everything um, yeah, I know that's how they got the uh, the Titanic anchor to where it needed to be as well. So um, we've got we've got the the uh, the raw materials. We've got the coal, um, the iron, and uh, we've got a, a well connected place, which is why it all happened there. So let's now talk about um, about Hingley's, the firm that um, was was given the, the commission to build Titanic's anchors. Uh, what do we know about this firm? What do we know about Noah Hingley? He he was born at the end of the eighteenth century. Um, fairly humble beginnings. Um, his family were making nails, but they were probably had like a very small workshop. A lot of them, um, you know, you think of Manchester and it's like the big cotton mills. The black country didn't have lots and lots of big factories. There were some, but a lot of it was also like kind of cottage industry, um, workshops in people's backyards. So they probably started out quite humbly. He had a bit of a basic education and then helped with the family business which was quite typical of that period you know the children would be put to work um certainly in yeah. like the the late 18th early 19th century um and he's you know he's not like massively educated but there's something about Hingley from what I was reading that he had like a entrepreneurial kind of get up and go I think is the best way I can describe it and he sees an opportunity in Liverpool. They're trading with Liverpool um, to um, set up a, a warehouse there to sell like chain and, and nails. And he goes out there. And from what I can tell, I think it was he's an initially kind of like welcomed, but then they start to see him as competition. And um, I think he kind of like has to leave Liverpool really, um, for, sort of forced out. But comes back to the black country, uh, an area called Cradley he was um, growing up in. Um, he comes back there to set up um, his own kind of business. Um, and he eventually settles on a site in um, Netherton, which is a few miles from where he was born. 
and gradually this massive work starts to develop he buys up like um collieries and rolling mills and things and he ends up with this massive massive works in netherton right by the canal um he dies in the 1870s but he's got his sons involved in the business and they continue it um he's very good at getting um agreements to use um like um, the hall's patent stockless anchor which is what the titanic anchor is based on um you know he sees these opportunities and really expands um the the business he's very he's the first in um, the staffordshire area to um take on the steam hammer that nasmith invented because he sees the opportunity of being able to make much bigger bigger anchors um so that these kind of things all put in place leading up to him being able to get the titanic anchor contract yeah, I thought it was fantastic that when it comes to the Titanic anchor contract, that Hingley's oversees the the anchor's final assembly, but there are other firms involved who make different parts of it. Yes, so um, they get the contract. They've they've already worked with um, the White Star Line for the Oceanic liner, um, mm-hmm. but yes, he they like to do everything. But obviously, it comes to this point that this this anchor needs to be the biggest ever made. And they don't have a steam hammer that's powerful enough to do the the length. It's um, I think it's over eighteen foot long. The the anchor. It's eighteen. I've got it in front of me here. Eighteen foot three inches long, ten feet six inches wide, and it weighs fifteen tons. Yeah, it it was huge. <laughs> so there's a company called Walter Summers in Hells Owen, which is um, this means something to local people, but it's it's a few miles down the road from Netherton. Um, right. So this company get the um, contract to do um, one element and then there's a company in Newcastle, um, Rogers I think it is, who make um, another part. Then it all gets brought back to the Hingley Works. They make the rest of the anchor and assemble it all there. They do make the whole, they they make another two anchors, the smaller eight ton anchors for the ship. There's two of those. Hingley's actually make that completely themselves. They don't um, farm that work out. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Right. Right. Okay, so we've got the kind of the, the shaft being made somewhere, you've got the head being made somewhere else, and then Hingley's doing what they need to do. Um, we, we skimmed over quite briefly saying that there, there wasn't a steam hammer large enough uh, for the job. What's a steam hammer? Why don't you tell our listeners what a steam hammer is? <laughs> um, well, it, 
it replaces um, an earlier um, tip hammer. Um, it's basically, um, you've got a furnace um, that captures the steam. You, you get it like hot enough um, and it captures the steam and then funnels that steam to the hammer, which forces the hammer to drop down. But it's a, from what I understand, it's a double action. So it forces it down, but the steam also forces the hammer back up as well. Um, uh-huh. it, cause, because it, you would still require a lot of men working on it. Um, but you've obviously got the power coming through. The steam is forcing a hammer at tremendous speed, uh, which is much more effective than what men could do on mm. their own. And um, you've sent me a video of a, of a steam hammer uh, working. Is that is that the one um, at the Black Country Living Museum? Uh, yes, yes, I did send you that one, yes. So we've got an anchor forge at the museum and the an- the steam hammer is comes from a place in uh, Preston's in Cradley Heath. They were the last ones making anchors in the black country in, into the 1970s. So when they finished making them, um, the museum acquired acquired them. And yeah, we it does run. Um, you can imagine how much um, fuel it, it works on oil today, but it, it guzzles yeah. quite a lot and requires five people. So we have it running at special events uh, rather than like an everyday occurrence. Yeah, I, I like I like the idea of a steam hammer. It, it's like it's the um, the the most wonderful um, sort of pure uh, industrial revolution invention. All it did was hammer stuff, but it did it unimaginably powerfully, and it also looks quite frightening in a in a in a, in a brilliantly Victorian industrial way. Doesn't yeah, it? and the thudding. Um, you know, I mean, Hingley's. Um, there were people who lived right by Hingley's works, and the vibrations and the the noise must have been immense sometimes when they were hammering huge anchors. Um, you know, I, I believe the vibrations, because you can hear there's still um, a stamping works nearby, and on hot days when they throw open the doors, you can hear that kind of, a few miles away, that rhythmic sort of stamping noise. Um, but from what I understand from the steam hammers back in the day, you would, people who lived nearby would feel vibrations in their houses. Gosh, how extraordinary. Um, I'm also, I hugely enjoyed the photograph of one of the gangs making chain for the Titanic. Um, it's a photograph taken at Hingley's. Um, these chains are, are really quite extraordinary, aren't they? So you've got the, the world's biggest uh, anchor that's being made, but then you may, I presume you've got to have the world's biggest chain to hold it in place. Yes, and Hingley's could make that. Um, and the the men, are, they're quite stocky, aren't they? Um, yeah. They, I mean, they would. They, they would they're work. tired as well. Yeah, <laughs> they would work um, long hours. I don't know how true this is, but I was just reading this morning that they kind of kept their own hours. Um, they would like try and get in really early um, to avoid the heat of the day, particularly in the summer, um, and would work so many hours and, and go. And I think these might have been the more highly skilled ones. I don't think a lot of companies would have just let workers choose their hours. Um, but um, yeah, they, it would be hard work. Um, they would. Um, they would have to put in put in the hours and the and the physical the sheer physical labour. Even though you've got a steam hammer doing some of the work and you get cranes brought in to start lifting the metal, um, you you still need um, that kind of manpower as well. Yeah, I'm looking at the picture now. The each link looks roughly the same size as a sheep. I think is the only way I could put it they, in terms of its kind of size and girth. Yeah, they're huge. They they're huge. We've got some amazing photographs in the collection of like anchor works and and, and chain works and the these anchors, uh, the, these these chains that are like they're phenomenal. Um, the the yeah. size, but they need to be because they've got to like take the weight of the anchors, haven't they? And lower them down. They don't. You know, you don't want them breaking either. No. 
I mean, you know, it, it just one little one little crack in one of these links, and it all goes wrong. It says here they made over a thousand feet of chain for the Titanic. That's a seriously repetitive job. Yes, and it you know it took them a long time. I don't know if we've got like an estimate of how long, but it, they worked on that that contract for quite a long time. And obviously, all this chain would have to be tested, and there was a, a Lloyd's proving house um, adjacent to the works, well, quite near to the works. Oh, handy. Um, so all, they would have to be tested to quite a strength. Um, you know, literally like pulled apart and they have to pass a certain um, sort of um, test. Uh, but yeah. the Titanic anchor chain all passed. Yeah. So the and, and the anchor itself would have been tested, wouldn't it? I believe so, yes, yes. Yeah. I think we need to do some more research to find out how they actually did that. I have got no idea. Um, no, because they talk. I was going to say they talk about how they tested the chain, but not not the anchors. Um, I love the fact that um, Hingley's marked gave a quality mark on their um, anchors, and they marked the Titanic one with NSBB, which stands for Netherton's Special Best Best Iron. Um, <laughs> best I just, best, yeah. like the best of the best. So I, I love good. that. Um, they also, I mean, we've we've talked touched on how they didn't make the whole of the Titanic anchor, the main mm. one. Um, but they they sort of did paint Hingley's on the side of it, um, which, you know, and you see in the photographs when it was pulled um, along by the horses, you can see Hingley's written on the side of the anchor. They paint the anchor yeah. white as well, so it really stands out. Yeah, well, they're using it as advertising, aren't they? I mean, even even today, we're here still talking about it. It's also interesting, they didn't just make the chain, but they made the shackles, because you've got you've got this huge anchor, right? Then you've got this 1,000 feet of chain, but then the, the, surely the most important bit is the bit that attaches the chain to the anchor. And there's um, a, a shackle workshop at Hingley's. Yeah, I mean, they'd have workshops for, like, every sort of part of the process, because, you know, the, the other anchors, they could do the whole of the job. So, yeah, they had different um, workshops. Claire, I've got this wonderful photograph here of this enormous anchor on a, a, a fairly rustic-looking wagon. Um, tell me about this, you know, the, the sort of celebratory journey it seems to have been. Yeah, I, the thing that interests me about the Titanic anchor journey is that... I, you know, I don't think Hingley's would have had like a PR department that a lot of companies have today, but they obviously saw an opportunity to um, really celebrate this anchor. I mean, it was the largest ship in the world was being built um, in Belfast. They were making the largest anchor in the world. You know, they knew they had a story here. So they, they did turn it into a spectacle. Um, the the vehicle that he travels on is a dray that was provided by the London and Northwestern Railway line which is where the titanic needed to anchor needed to go to it couldn't travel by canal apparently it's too large so that's why the road was chosen route um i think originally there was like hingley's had six horses of their own um that they were going to use and the railway brought along eight of their own and i don't know kind of what happened but they kind of got put together there's different stories and then more horses turned up so you get this spectacle of 20 horses yeah. That to me feels a bit of the showmanship of the whole thing. Um, apparently, some of the horses were decorated with like May Day ribbons because it was actually May Day that the the anchor was being moved in 1911. Wow. Um, and you do you get like um, the local press are there and the the Dudley Chronicle, which um, does a big article on it, the the big local newspaper at the time. They say that there's photographers like on every embankment, you know, sort of trying to get a good shot of it. And people start gathering and coming out of um, their houses. 
um, to, to see it and it's apparently watched like the proce you know as it proceeds through Netherton up to Dudley um, there's lots of people standing on the roadside um, there's a local photographer E Beach um, from Cradley Heath who photographs it and a lot of those photographs that you'll see of the anchor are taken by him and they get turned into postcards at the time which do get sent you know out um, you know they're, they're, they're still in print today but they were sent out at the time so really we're grateful to to, to him for capturing them. Um, I love the fact that somebody from Birmingham who runs a cinema um, comes over and actually um, takes very early film footage of the procession. Um, and oh. then he takes it back to his cinema in Birmingham to show it to the audiences, um, I assume mm. before a feature film. Um, and apparently people... Does, will... does that survive, do you? I've never come across it. The first I'd heard about it was in this Dudley Chronicle newspaper article from the time. I would love it if somebody said, oh, I've got that because I've never mm. seen it. The, you know, the, apparently like the sight of the horses um, being filmed, pulling the anchor along up um, like a steep incline, kind of like really wowed the audience in the cinema. Um, wow. And, you know, so to see like this moving image must have been quite stirring. To see it in real life must have been like pretty like special. Um, yeah. You know, people were used to seeing probably anchors coming out of the works, but this was massive, you know, um, the, the the biggest that had been made. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it was like a big spectacle. And, and um, you know, Hingley's kind of really did kind of um, capture like a, a real kind of PR moment, I think. Yeah, didn't they do well? Did they? Actually, brilliant. And I love it because obviously the anchor's huge and on it in its own right, that and the chain is astonishing. But there's a there's a... A sort of a gap here there's a shadow and that's the obvious if the anchor's that big how big is this vessel and so these poor people wouldn't have been able to see photos of the titanic or drawings of it but they would have known just what was going on in belfast yes i mean it was certainly you know people were aware of these um, big ocean liners um you know i mean there were people in the black country who were actually emigrating out to america and canada in this period and trying to get on um ships like this um you know there's a in my own family there's a story that um one branch of the family tried to get tickets for the titanic couldn't get it but they did book their furniture and belongings onto it um yeah. and lost obviously all their belongings they later did carry on to emigrate to Canada. So that branch of the family lives in Canada today. Um, so people would have been aware of, of the ship because um, that's how they filled up the ship, wasn't it? With third-class passengers, sort of the, the cheaper tickets to emigrating. Um, I was reading about that. It wouldn't have been a very nice journey. The the women um, and children were at the um, sort of end of the boat and would have had all the vibrations of the propellers, the engine and the boilers. It was... Wouldn't have been perhaps a nice journey for the third class passengers. Pretty grim, pretty grim. Now, you were telling me about a little bit of family research. Why don't you share that with our listeners? Well, I've always known about the Titanic anchor journey from um, Netherton to Dudley um, because um, it was always said in the family, my great granny's in one of those photographs with two of her brothers. So she would have been 10 in 1911. And the family lived on Washington Street, which is right by the Hingley Works. They had an entrance on Washington Street. Um, the houses have like completely gone now. Um, so there's that kind of bit of history. And like, I know the, the person that she's meant to be in the photograph, um, which is, is lovely. I never got to meet my great grand. She died um, just before I was born. Um, 
But then I came across um, something my gran had written and um, there was a photograph published in a newspaper of um, men who'd worked on the Titanic and she said that her grandfather was in the photograph. Um, and I, I just found this the other day and I was like, oh, I didn't, didn't know this, never heard about this. So I looked on the census and his name was Frank. He actually was a furnace man at a rolling mill and Hingley's had a part of the, the complex of the Hingley works included a rolling mill. So it's there's a good chance living right by it that he worked there. But I also noticed that my great grand's older brother, Frank, um, age 20, he was um, listed as a blacksmith striker at a chain and anchor work. So again, you know, you're kind of thinking it was probably Hingley's being where they lived. So I kind of this was quite new to me. I was like, oh, because they, they lived at number 55 Washington Street. I'm kind of like, oh, they, you know, they they could, they were probably working there when the Titanic anchor was being made, even if they didn't work on it um, themselves. Yeah, so I like they that. Have, they would have known about it. Yeah, yeah. And like my grand says that he's in this photograph, which I'd never come across before. So I've got to try and track down this photograph um, and see if I can identify him on it because I've never heard that mentioned before. And my grand's not here to, to ask her about it. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of in touching history of the Titanic. Yay! <laughs> well, well, well done you, and the Titanic anchor, more to yes. the point. Claire, thank you very much indeed for sharing this wonderful story with us today. That's okay. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, do please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast on YouTube, where you will find some fabulous and innovative video material telling our maritime past in new ways, ways you have never seen before. Most recently, a wonderful video showcasing one of the finest ship models ever made, filmed with the very latest camera technology. It really does blow your mind. And for you Titanic fans out there, we have a lovely little animation of what we call Titanic in Miniature, explaining how a steam engine of the time worked and also an astonishing flyover of a 3D model of the Titanic which was built based on the ship's original drawings. It's all worth checking out. Best of all, however, do please join the Society for Nautical Research. It doesn't cost you very much, but it supports this podcast. You receive four copies a year of the Mariner's Mirror Journal, which has been published for over a century. You get to come to the SNR's annual dinner on board HMS Victory, and you get to support the world's maritime heritage. There really is no better way to spend a little bit of your spare change. You can find out everything we do and everything we have done in the past at snr.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.